We're going to be in Psalm 119 and verse 97. So that's where we'll begin in a few moments. Some interesting thoughts as we begin this morning. Do you know that what you're drawn to, what you're drawn to is what you delight in, or what you delight in is what you're drawn to? What you find attractive is where your heart goes. Another way to say this would be what you behold is what you become. Think about your hobbies and interests and how they shape you. It's what you behold and it's what you become. It's what you look at, it's what you desire. Why do some people prefer certain hairstyles? Why do some people prefer certain clothing styles? Why do some people prefer certain interests? And the list could go on and on. It's because what you behold, maybe it was your family. You were pushed down a certain path and so it was an important family value and now it's just become ever more so important to you as you continued in your life. And because what you behold is what shapes you and what you enjoy. It's interesting that the God who made you knows this. And we see this in scripture, especially this morning, that what you behold is what you become. Where your affections are is what you live for. It's interesting though, the enemy of God knows this as well. And so he's constantly putting up things that you'll behold because he wants you to become like them. So false gods, false idols that you'll pursue because you'll neglect the God of this book if you pursue them. You'll go down those rabbit trails, if you will. You'll go down those false paths if you behold and delight in those things. And then here we we have it. This is the never-ending battle for delight. We're gonna delight in something. You're made to delight in something. That's how God hardwired humanity, that you would find satisfaction in something. And again, God knows it and the enemy of God knows it and then we have the war. The constant battle for what you delight in. And so we could go this morning in a variety of directions. If you delight in your work, you are a workaholic. It's what satisfies you. That's where you find your identity. And that's, that's probably one of the greatest struggles that we have in regards to identity in the American culture. I mean, the first question of conversation is what's your name? And the second question is what do you do because your job defines you. And in that moment, you're either cool or not cool. You're either lame or not lame, right? Because your job is like, oh, you're that? And I'm not gonna fill in that, but you all know what I'm talking about, all right? Like, it's just, that's, that's like, ooh, ooh, you do that? It defines you. And it's because you what you delight in. It's what holds your affections. For some of you, that illustration matters not at all because you hate your job and you're not defined by it, right? <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. It's like, what I, this, I delight in this. It's what I pursue. It's what defines me. It shapes my thinking, what I, what I spend my time investing in, my energies, my reading, my hobbies. They're all structured around what I delight in. Because whatever consumes your affections will dictate your life. That's just simply put. Whatever consumes your affections will dictate your life. And here this morning, the psalmist pushes us to delighting in God's word. Because when you delight in God's word, it transforms your life. And, and we have hit this over and over in Psalm 119. We have taken this diamond and we've turned it and we're gonna keep turning it and keep turning it. And as the light comes through it, we're gonna see new ways to understand what it means to delight in the word of God and then the effects of it transforming our lives to the glory of God. So let's read Psalm 119, 97 through 104 again. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your command makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. 
I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. So our big idea, if you will, the the thought that I hope rings in your brain will be delighting in God's word produces transformation. All right, we have three simple points that come out of this text. The first one is love the word. Love the word. Love the word of God. Look at verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. He declares affection for the word of God. In Psalm 119, as you know, every eight verses starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So in this section today, it's what we would compare to our M letter. And the interesting thing about the way he wrote this is that because it's an acrostic, because every line of every section begins with the same letter, there's some similarities. As you would imagine, if you've ever tried to write poetry, which I don't try to do, it's complicated. So here in this section, he has two ways every verse starts. And you'll notice that 97 and, uh, let's see here, 97 and uh, 103 start the same. Oh, how I love. Or with this exclamatory statement, how sweet. Well, that's the same Hebrew word in the sense of the same prefix. Oh, how. He's going to proclaim something of affection. And every other verse in the section starts with a comparative particle. So you're going to notice that every other verse outside of 97 and 103, they're going to compare and contrast something because it's just how the language structured the text. So here we see his first exclamation. Oh, how I love your law. Folks, genuine love for God will always, will always result in genuine love for the word of God. When somebody says to me, I love God and I don't read my Bible, I, I, I lovingly respond with, how do you love God? You don't even know him. Like if I, if I say I have a love for the Lord and then he's given me a book to know him, but I don't open this book, you're, you'd be like, something's wrong with you. I mean, can you imagine, my wife and I, we were engaged, you know, back in the day, and she would write me letters. This was before we had texts, and I think email was, email was there, but you didn't use it that much. Um, So we'd write, you know, letters. Can you imagine me saying, I love my wife, or my fiance, and I have a box full of letters I've never read? What? Come again? Maybe you should read them. Maybe there's something in there she wants you to know. No, right? I mean, come on. If you've been there before, you get that letter and you read it. You might even smell it. And you read it again. And you read it again, right? You're like, I wonder what she means by this. What, drew, what draws your heart to that? Affection. You, I love her, therefore what she writes to me, I love. Folks, if you love God, your love for the word of God is going to exist. They cannot be separated. And here the psalmist is simply saying, oh, how I love your law, not because he's some bookish monk, but because he loves the God of this book. And so he just proclaims with genuine affection, I love the word of God. It's interesting then, as you love the word, guess what it does? It increases your love for God. So just like those letters increased my love for my now wife, when you love God and you are in the word of God, guess what? Your love for God grows. 
and then it draws you back to the word of God. And it's just this beautiful circle of, wow, God, you are great and you're good. And I see it over and over in your word and you keep going back to it. And so this morning, right out of the chute, if you will, the psalmist just says, I love your law. Not only do I love it, but it is what I think about all the time. And here we see that affection for the word produces meditation. Meditation is just simply put, thoughtful contemplation. Thoughtful, careful thinking. You don't just check in and check out. If you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably been guilty like I have of doing your devotions. You just check the box. You know, you have a routine. Before breakfast, I read my Bible. And you read your Bible. And when you close your Bible, if somebody said, what did you read about? You would say, I have no idea. Like, I just, I did it. I checked the box. But I have no idea. That is not meditation. To meditate on something is to chew it over and over and over. And it's interesting that here, this is not a command to be obeyed. It's the natural response of a heart that loves. Do you see the difference? Because I think sometimes we, we get on this, all right, a good Christian meditates on God. Meditate, meditate, meditate. <laughs> but that's not what he's going on here. What's going on is, is I have affection for God. So guess what? I think about him all the time. And because I, I find him in his word, then I'm thinking about the word all the time. Because my affections translate directly into what I think about. You know, just like if you're saving for a new car. And you've been saving for a long time. You know, it's probably one of those cars that you, 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 you can't afford like right now, but if you save for four or five years, you could get there. So you're saving and you're driving the old jalopy because you're gonna get to what you really want. You know, you're gonna know a lot about that car you want, right? You're thinking about it, you're researching about it. I mean, you don't walk into the dealership saying, hey, what do you got here today? You're like, I want that one. I have studied it. I have done my research. You're not going to change my mind. That's what I want. The affection produces careful thinking. We see that in the scriptures. Affection produces careful thinking. And the psalmist is coming back to that over and over. And we'll see that many times, even in this section today. I love you and I love your law. And then I think about it continually. And folks, if we don't meditate on the Lord, it may just be because, again, our affections are on something else, right? And that would be a good thing for you and I to wrestle through this week is, God, do I think about you carefully and often? Is it forced behavior to think about God? Like that, it shouldn't be that way. It should be something that naturally comes up in our life because it's what we love. And so he's always on our minds and always on our affections. And if you just, just hold, hold your finger there and, and, or maybe just go down a few verses. Let's, I had to turn the page. You may not have to. Verse 103. Because he's going to say the same thing in a different way. He proclaims love in verse 97, but here he just talks about the genuine delight in God. How sweet are your words to my taste. The idea here is that my palate is satisfied. I, I want, I, it literally, it lacks nothing in my mouth. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Now remember ancient Near East culture, you don't get a Snickers bar, all right? This is some, the sweetest thing you have is honey. I mean, remember what Samson did when he disobeyed God? He went to a carcass and he got what? It, honey. We were like, honey, seriously, Samson, can't you resist? <laughs> it's not that good. But for them, that's like, that's the sweetest thing they know. And he's saying, this is where I go. Like, if I want sweet, I go here. And so he says, the greatest sweetness I can imagine to my palate, the word of God is even better. Like, that's the comparison statement of verse 103. Sweeter are your words to my taste than anything I could possibly 
eat. Once again, this is just because he loves his God and God is the infinitely lovely one. There's nothing better than him. And the word of God does, shows us that time and time again. I mean, again, if you've walked with God, you know that to be true. You've been in the word of God, you've been, you come away with God, you're so good. God, you care for me. Oh God, I'm so unworthy, but why? Why do you love me so? Right, you, you, you've come away from that in this book. And you've had those moments of the word is sweet to me. That's all he's saying here. Your word is preciously sweet to me, more than anything I could ever eat. And so, for me, again, meditating on this, thinking about this, the thought is, God, would I say that your word is sweeter to me than the greatest delights of my life? Or is there something that you're like, well, actually, you know what, I'd rather have this than God in his word right now? I mean, God, you're a good second best. Because isn't that how we kind of treat God? It's like, I want all of these things in order, and then God, I'm gonna add you to what I have. And here the psalmist is saying, oh, no, 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 no. Better than everything that I could possibly imagine is God found in the word of God. And so I think it's unquestionable, as we've seen over and over in Psalm 119, the psalmist has a genuine love for God and his word. And we need to increase our love for God and his word. Even if you would sit here this morning and say, oh, amen, I love God and his word. Let's do it more. Let's increase our love for him. And maybe you're here saying, uh, nope, not me. I don't, I don't have that. I know that I don't have that. Well, then say, God, help me to get there. Help me to get there that I will have a genuine love for your word. Because folks, if you don't get here, the Christian life is gonna be like a hamster on that wheel that never stops. You're gonna keep trying to do more for God, wondering why you're so worn out. But guess what? When you have such deep affections for God, the Christian life isn't a hamster wheel, it's just a joyful delight. It's just, I love you, and I wanna live for you, and I don't feel like I have to perform better to make God happy with me. I love him, and he loves me, and I go to his word, and I find him preciously sweet. Now, don't hear me wrong there, because we're gonna get right into that in the Christian life, we must live for God. So there are times that it is hard work to live for God, but it's produced out of a heart that is full of affection for God. So we must delight in God's word, love the word. Second thing we see in this text is that we must learn from the word. So love the word, and we learn from the word. Verse 98 through 100. Your commandments makes me wiser than my enemies. Verse 99. I have more understanding than all my teachers. Verse 100, I understand more than the aged. This isn't a statement of self-confident pride. This is a statement of, God, I have sought you and your word has produced something in me. You're the one that does it all. I've not dug deep, excuse me, I've not dug deep and found wisdom in my own soul. I didn't go to the, the depth of my own understanding and come away with, I am so brilliant. I went to you and you did something in me. So let's just walk through what it means to learn from the word of God, because that's really the, the major section of this text is how we learn from the scriptures. Verse 98, your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. Here we see the benefits of the ever-present word of God. It's ever-present. Look at how the verse ends. For it is ever with me. Now remember, the context of Psalm 119 so far has been deceived or seeped in suffering. He's not living a happy-go-lucky life. He's actually experiencing great misery and pain. So in the midst of his misery and pain, suffering at the hands of evil people, 
He says, not only is your word within me, but your word produces wisdom, so much wisdom that those who are persecuting me, the enemies of God, I'm wiser than them. I'm wiser than even the wisdom of this world. That's why I think the Proverbs is so rich. You read the book of Proverbs and it lines up. Wisdom and folly. And if you're like me, you read the Proverbs and you're like, oh man, really? I line up on the folly side again? Man, another day where I'm just not quite on the wisdom side? But the more you bathe in the wisdom of God, right? You realize, oh, I get it. And that moment that you actually put into practice, a soft answer turns away wrath. Like, oh, wisdom works. Like, God, you're doing it. I didn't go down the path of folly and blurt out like a fool the first thing that came to my mind. So he sees that wisdom, your commandments make me wiser than the enemies of God. And again, this isn't an arrogant, I'm dumb, you're stupid statement. This is just, God, you produce wisdom through your word. And so I go to your word and it's ever with me. I think there's a few things here in this statement. What does he mean? Well, the word of God speaks into everything at all times. And I don't think we actually believe that. I think we actually think that this book is really good for all matters of faith. Like where I'm gonna go when I die. Like that's important, the Bible tells me that. And it's gonna tell me how to be forgiven and you know, and a few other things on faith. But you know, I mean really, how to be a better, and you just fill in the blank. How to be a better husband. How to be, to be a better employee to a boss who's a jerk. How to raise children. How to, we just keep, keep going down that line. We really don't think the word of God has the answers. So we've gotta to go to some other self-help technique. We've got to just Google it and hopefully we come to a good answer, right? Where he says, no, no, your word is ever with me on all matters of faith and practice. Theologically, he just told us in verse 89, the the word will never pass away. It's firmly fixed in the heavens. So I think he's referring back to what he's already said. The word isn't going anywhere, folks. I mean, the world will pass away, but not not one jot or tittle of this book will pass away. So it's ever with me. But then practically he's told us, I meditate on this book. So guess what? It's ever in my heart. I don't just have my devotions and close this book. It's something that dwells in me. I continually chew on it and think about it throughout my days. So it is ever with me. And for some of us, since we don't meditate on this book, it's not ever with us. The word actually says a lot about life, but we have no idea what it says. And and that's a frustrating spot to be in. Well, you're just like, I don't know what God says. Like, frankly, I just don't know because I'm not in this book. So then you're, then in that moment of crisis, you have to go somewhere and you don't go here. So he says, God, your word, it makes me wiser because it is ever with me. Well, the next verse, he's kind of, kind of crescendoing, if you will. He's building here. 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. This is significant because in the ancient Near East culture, um, unlike in Western society today, teachers were respected. Like, I mean like a high, high regard. Like when you, I mean it was you, they were revered because they taught you, all right? And we have this kind of society today that hey, you know, you don't know all that much or I know more than you. And it's, that wasn't the context here. Here it was the teachers were significant people. And again, he's not belittling teachers. He's simply saying that the word of God gives me more understanding than even those who teach me. How is it possible? Well, because the knowledge of a teacher may be strictly academic. 
It may just be information in your head. It may not be transformational wisdom for life. Here, I think we're seeing the contrast between academic knowledge, head knowledge, and transformational wisdom. That's his point. You may have heard today that a renowned mind died. Stephen Hawking died this week, a man more brilliant than any of us will ever hope to be from human standards. He was one of the greatest physicists of the last probably 200 years. Um, A brilliant, brilliant man. And yet a man who entirely denied the existence of God. Um, And he did so very aggressively. I think when the psalmist refers to being made wiser than my teachers, that's what he's referring to. Somebody who could have an amazing mind. Truly, I mean, in common grace, an amazing mind. And yet not walk with God. And the psalmist here is saying, because I steep my soul in the word of God, I actually know wisdom. Because the word of God isn't about just spitting out facts, right? It's about walking with God. And so he's saying, there are people who are my teachers, but they don't walk with you. And so your word makes me, or gives me more understanding. Interesting that he says, for your, again, for your testimonies are my meditation. The continual thought of and pursuit of God's word produces true wisdom. True wisdom. Folks, there's a lot of us here that we, we have a lot of information, but it doesn't affect the day-to-day habits of your life. And according to God's word, that's not wisdom. That's a fool. Wisdom isn't being able to ace a Bible exam. Oh, I can recite the books of the Bible. I can even do it backwards. Come on, I know. I mean, I know this book. It's really not where God's going. His point is, do you live this book? And I think that's where, where the psalmist is getting at this morning. Like, it's not just head knowledge. It's he has transformed my life. I live this out day in, day out. The little moments of life. One of my uh, favorite authors says, you know, you are who you are, not in the big moments of life, but in the daily, little by little moments of life. You know, we might say, well, I'm, I'm not an angry guy. My wife crashed the car and I didn't get angry. She didn't crash the car, by the way. But some people do that. I don't get angry. I mean, this thing blew up. I didn't, I mean, I just responded in grace. Yeah, well, what about when my two-year-old spills milk? Like every day. Do I get angry or do I give grace? Right, there's wisdom, right? The day-to-day interactions of life. He says the word of God speaks into it and it gives me understanding because I dwell on your word moment by moment throughout my day. Folks, we've all learned things for tests that didn't do anything for our life. We must not treat God's word that way. This book is not something that we just go, oh, that was good, yeah. Yeah, good book, good sermon, thanks. Check out and don't do a thing with it. God says you're a fool who looks at your face in a mirror and goes away unchanged. Can you imagine this morning if you woke up, looked in the mirror and walked in this room and just said, I'm fine? I mean, it'd be like, uh, no, you're not. Um, yeah, you, you smell and your hair is going this way and your teeth got stuff growing on them and fix it. But isn't that what we do with scripture if we just treat it as bookish? It's like, oh yeah, that was good. It doesn't affect a thing about our lives. And he says, wisdom and understanding is actually living out this book. It transforms me. So it's learning that moves directly into our lives. So he's shown us that we must um, 
this ever-present word in verse 98. We must think deeply on the word in 99. And then verse 100. I understand more than the aged, the elderly, for I keep your precepts. And here we see the benefit of obeying the word. That's for I keep them. I obey. He's going back to the heart of obedience. Again, he's not disrespecting the elderly. He's not saying, you know, youth is better than, 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 than age. Idolize youth like our, our culture says today. It's not where he's going. What he is saying is that unwise people don't become wise simply because they're old. If you live a life rejecting God's wisdom, it doesn't magically hit because you get to a certain age. And so he says, I have more wisdom, I have more understanding than the elderly. If they have lived in rejection of God's wisdom, I know more than them. And that's actually one of the beautiful things about Christian discipleship. It's not just older to younger, it's all of us, right? Because there's, a, there's ways that I might have more maturity than you, and you might have more maturity than me. And we interact at that level over the wisdom of God's word. But we don't have this construct that says, well, when you hit a certain age, you are now respectable. Now, should we respect the elderly? Absolutely. We're talking here about the context of Psalm 100, or Psalm 119, 100 where he says, if you've lived a life of unwisdom, you won't just become wise at a certain point. So he, lifelong patterns of seeking God's wisdom equal that you get wise with age. And we, we know those people. You have people in mind, you're like, oh man, this person's walked with God for decades and they just like ooze wisdom. And then there's people that maybe they've walked with God in part, maybe they haven't, and they don't ooze wisdom, do they? right? It's not there because it wasn't what they filled their lives with. And so that's his point. Lifelong patterns of seeking wisdom. Well, you get wisdom at the end. Lifelong patterns of rejecting God's wisdom equal foolishness with age. And that's what he's saying here. I have more wisdom than even the elderly. And again, folks, this is a culture that the elderly were revered, truly revered. So he is not being disrespectful. He's just saying, God, your word your word, when it bathes a soul, it gives wisdom, regardless of age. And those who regard, disregard your wisdom, they're not wise. They're not wise. But interesting where he goes. Look at it in verse 100. For I keep your precepts. Here's going to launch us into our next point. Biz, biblical wisdom is never intellectual alone. It's always moral. It get, let me say it again. Biblical wisdom is never intellectual alone. It is, it is something that affects our mind, but it goes after our hearts. It's gonna move into our lives. So again, it's not just, I, I'm a scripture memory guru. I won awards in childhood programs. I know my Bible. It's, I live it out for I keep. The contrast is obvious. I'm, I have more understanding than the aged because I keep your commandments. So he's obviously here referring to the aged who what? They don't keep his commandments. So he's saying, the wisdom that I have is, is just because I keep your word. I obey you. I mean, listen to these verses. Psalm 111, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praises endure forever. So guess what, folks? You could have a general understanding of the fear of the Lord and not practice it. You're not wise. His point here is, I recognize who God is, I recognize what he says about humanity, and I submit to him. 
I practice it. And there's wisdom. Job 28, 28. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord is that, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. You can know something and not turn away from evil. You know, people like to say, well, you know, um, you know, I'm, how do, what's the phrase in culture of, you know, wisdom comes through experience. No, that's actually not true. Any fool can experience anything and have pain. Wisdom from this book is actually by faith, believing what God says and not going down that path. So we don't just say, oh, well, I've been down that road. I know what it's like. Um, maybe that's helpful. Maybe it's not. What matters is we go to this book and say, I haven't experienced what you're going through, but I've got a God who speaks into it. So we're going to go to the book. And it's not like, well, you understand me because you've been where I've been. Now, at times that's helpful. But it's because sometimes that's kind of the prop that our culture puts up, doesn't it? You can only help me if you've been down my road. Actually, that's not true. I have a God who wrote your road. So I'm going to go to him. We're going to go to that book together and say, okay, we can learn from him together. I don't need to experience what you experience to walk in the way of wisdom. A wise man foresees evil and hides himself. A wise man does not go down the road and say, wow, that hurt. Let's try to not do that again. That's not God's plan for your life or mine. Biblical wisdom is to turn away from evil. Jeremiah 8, 9. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? This is Jeremiah speaking of the wise men in Israel. He said, they're going to be taken hostage and led away. So he calls them wise, obviously in a worldly sense, because he finishes the verse with what wisdom is in them. And how does he know they're unwise? They've rejected the word of the Lord. So he says, you've rejected God's good word. You're not wise. There's no wisdom in you. And folks, it'd do good for us to actually admit that all of us at many times, each moment of our lives, we go down that path. I'm a fool because in that moment, I think I know better than God. In that moment, I say, yeah, you know what, God? I'm not going to listen to you right now. I'm going to go after my sin. And he says, wisdom is not affirming something mentally. It's walking in the truth you know to be true. So we delight in God's word and it transforms our life. And you know, even before we get to the last section here this morning, think with me for a moment that Jesus our savior, he didn't preach an enlightened faith, like just get smarter. That's what a lot of religious gurus have done throughout history. Just here's a, here's a more enlightened way of thinking. When you arrive there, you're there, whatever there is. No, Jesus actually had a different message. Hey, repent, turn from your sin and do it God's way, right? Like right there, the mo- that, that crux of the gospel is not a mere intellectualism, it's a submission to Christ, Well, guess what? The Christian faith is the exact same. It's a, I read the word, I believe it, and I submit to God. So how the Christian life begins is how it should continue. I recognize who I am before you, and I desperately need you. And then I see who I am and how much I desperately need you. And that just continues until the day we're with our Savior. So this isn't an anomaly. This is the message of the cross. Repent of your sins. Turn to me. Do it my way. That's the beginning of the Christian faith and it continues on until with our savior.
So we learn from the word. Well, there's a third point, and we've already touched on it, and it, because verse 100 launches us into it. We have live by the word. Love the word, learn from the word, now live by the word. So let's walk through this a little bit more together and see how the Lord would encourage us to live by the word. Verse 101. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your precepts. I think the easiest way to put this is seeking God is never easy. Seeking God is never easy. You know, we've made Christianity pretty weak sauce today, haven't we? I mean, if you read Jesus, Christianity wasn't weak sauce. It was hardcore. I mean, can you imagine, just for a moment, imagine with me that somebody actually walks up to you and says, brother, sister, friend, how can I have eternal life? (laughs) Wow, Lord, that's like the perfect opportunity to to preach the gospel. I mean, that doesn't happen every day, does it? Right, it doesn't happen to me every day. I want that to happen, it doesn't happen. Well, guess what happened when it happened to Jesus? He didn't say, oh man, I'm so glad that you asked that question. Hey, let me tell you, just here's a, here's a little prayer to pray. And then we're going to get into later, after a while, we'll start talking about what it means to actually be a Christian. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, how can I have eternal life? And he said, keep the commandments. Oh, I've done all of that. Okay, go sell everything. And the man refused. Why? Because he was not willing to submit to Jesus. And he walked away, and it says he walked away sorrowful. And you and I today and every church guru would say, Jesus, you missed a perfect opportunity. Like he was ready. He wasn't ready because he was loving his sin. Christian life, where it begins, I'm done running. I'm done going my own way. I'm done running. I'm going, I'm, I'm following you. I'm dying to self and I'm embracing you as my Lord and Savior. That's the message of the gospel and guess what? It's the message of the Christian life. It's by grace, God is good, he is worthy of following, but we have just made the Christian message one of so just chillax. We have categories of spiritual Christian and carnal Christian, and we think it's okay to claim Christ and not walk with him for decades. That's not the message of the word of God. Here the psalmist says, I hold back my feet. I mean, what do you think? When you think something being held back, it's like a bull running and he's holding it back. It's, where, it's something you want to do, but no, I'm not going down that path. It's so fascinating in verse 101. I hold back my feet from every evil way. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to sin? I'm just like right there. It's like I wake up, sin. I don't wake up thinking, oh man, I'm so glad my alarm went off. I'm so ready to just open my Bible this morning. I'm like, oh, really? It still feels like the middle of the night. My, my, my first waking thought is sin. And then I just have to go out into a world that rejects God, and it's even worse. So my own heart, it's there. The world we live in, it's there. It's all around us. And the psalmist just says, every evil way is at my disposal. Not just inside of me, but everywhere I turn. And I'm gonna hold back my feet, and there we see it's a constant fight. It's a constant fight. It's this, I'm regularly in the word, meditating on the word, and I'm thoroughly convinced that God's way is good, God's way is best, and I'm gonna fight. Do we even live in the awareness that we're in a fight? Sometimes I, 
I find myself just skating through the Christian life. You know, just kind of, yeah, I'm doing all right. I'm, I, yeah, you know, I'm loving God, but if you actually ask me, I'm not dying to sin because I don't think I'm dealing with too much sin right now. That's a scary place to be. Because that moment you think you're okay, you're about to get hit by a train. And you can't even hear the siren screaming. And it runs over you. Like, oh, I don't even know what happened. Well, what happened was you weren't aware that you were in a fight. You forgot the fact that you were in a fight. And, and then you got run over and you're wondering what hits you. If we don't realize that we are in a fight and we're constantly holding back every moment of every day, we'll find ourselves both thinking and doing every evil way, right? Because it starts in our heads and then it comes out in our lives. So we must be constantly on guard that the world we live in, the flesh that we still have, it's pulling us down this road of every evil way. And it's not folks just knowing what's right. Wisdom is actually doing it. You might be able to say all day long, I know this is sin. That's not wisdom. That's a God-given conscience. Wisdom is I refrain from sin. I walk with God. I mean, look at the end of that verse. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to do what? To keep your word. This is the heart of faith. The psalmist is walking by faith. He actually, in this moment, believes God's will and God's way is best. I mean, what did Mo- what was Hebrews 11 say about Moses? He chose to be treated with the people of God rather enjoying what? The fleeting, the fleeting pledges of sin. So guess what, church? Sin feels good. And don't believe anybody who says sin's not fun. Sin's fun. We all know that. We also know that sin destroys us. It promises what it can't deliver. And it takes you farther down the road you ever wanted to go. And it stings in the end like something that you never dreamed imaginable. So sin is pleasurable for a season, but in the end it produces death. Here the psalmist, he says, I am gonna keep your word. What does that mean? It means I actually believe God, you know what you're talking about. And when those evil ways come before me, (laughs) I'm like immediately going to this book and going, no way. It says this, I'm not going down that path. That's a lie. I'm going to truth every time. I am committed to keeping your word. He is walking by faith. So when culture is screaming something else, when your flesh is longing for something, the essence of faith is God, I'm siding with you. Even if I don't want it right now. Even if I don't feel it right now. Don't trust your feelings. Don't go with what you want. Read the word and say, okay, God, I'm doing it this way. And know his will and his way is best. So seeking God is never easy. And then verse 102, seeking God is never accidental. It's not easy and it's not accidental. 102, I do not turn aside from your rules for you have taught me. Here we see that the rules of God, the path of righteousness is clearly laid out. God is not a God of confusion. He has not left it up to you to figure out how to live for him. He's laid it out. The psalmist says, I don't turn aside from your rules. The rules of the map. I don't know about you, I'm a map guy. I don't like being lost. And it's not like that chauvinistic male thing, all right? It was that I grew up uh, as a, a mover, okay, with a moving company, and I was, before phones and tablets, I was the guy that read the map because I couldn't drive yet. All right, so I'm the guy that would like, you actually had a map that you printed out or a big book, 
Remember that? And you actually like had to find it on a map and there wasn't a red dot saying go here. All right, so I'm the, I was the map guy. And to this day, I'm just like, oh, I don't like not knowing where I'm going. I just want to see it on a map and then I can get there. And, and that's just how my brain works. Well, the rules of God are, are his map. He's like, I've given it to you. But guess what, folks? We got to know it, right? And that's the point of Psalm 119. How do you keep your way pure while you guard it according to the word? Well, guess what? If you don't know the word, you don't know the map. And you're not able to walk with God. And when the lies of sin and the lies of your flesh creep in, you may not even be able to, to discern if they're lies or truth because you don't know the map. And so you're not able to say, oh, no, 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 I know what truth is. The map is clear. The rules are clear. I'm going to follow them. And so the, the map is, literally, is clearly laid out. It's the rules, the word of God. But he says, I'm not turning aside. Listen to just the intentionality of that statement. I refuse to turn aside. Like, I, I'm not going down that road. Have you ever had moments in your life where you're so tempted by sin that there's like a literal war that you finish exhausted? Especially if you don't cave in. Where maybe, maybe it's a old, old past sin that for some reason just like hits you and you're like, I want that right now. And you start fighting. No, I'm not going down that path, right? I'm fighting. I refuse to turn because there's that war going on inside. Folks, we can't cop out with, you know, the devil made me do it. We can't go down that road. We can't start blaming, well, you know, I was raised in a bad home, so I do this. Now, do our circumstances affect us? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, you and I stand before God. And we're not going to be able to say, well, this happened to me, so I ran from you. We are accountable before God to choose to walk with him. I mean, just, just remember a few stories with me. Joseph. If anybody had PTSD, Joseph had it. If anybody should have been messed up and on drugs, it was Joseph. If anybody had an excuse to say, I had a bad life, it's Joseph. I mean, we, we come into the story, most of his life, he is a slave. Do you realize he died a slave? He's a ruler in Egypt, but he's still in a foreign land. Right? He is still not in his home. And we come into the story, you know, you, you probably know where I'm going in Genesis 39. And a woman throws herself at Joseph. I mean, literally, this isn't pornography, this is real life. Throwing herself at him. And there is no accountability. He can have whatever he wants. And what does he do? <laughs> I'm out. I am running. Because why? Because he practiced Psalm 119, 102. I do not turn aside from your rules. So we read that and we're astounded, but really, shouldn't that be our life story? Like, Lord, I wake up every day, God, I'm not turning aside today. I, I want to follow you, no matter what temptation comes. It doesn't matter if sin is screaming at me like Potiphar's wife. I run, because my mind is made up. I, I don't turn from your rules. Just think with me another Bible example. Daniel's three friends in Daniel 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? I mean, we don't, we don't comprehend the gravity of the situation. Tens of thousands of people worshiping before a statue that is massive. And they all bow down on their faces and these three guys stand up. I mean, talk about the awkward moment. I mean, everybody in the entire kingdom that has been summoned is like, uh, <laughs> oops, maybe they didn't get the memo. Let's try again. 
And what do they respond with? Go ahead, give us another chance. It won't matter. We're not gonna do it. We're not gonna bow down. And our God, if he chooses to deliver us, he will. And if he doesn't, he's still God in heaven. So our lot is cast. We do not turn aside from your rules. And I find that far too often, we wait until the moment sin comes to make that decision. Folks, if you wait that long, you will fail. It's not, you don't wait until that moment. It's a resolve of life. I meditate on this book. I agree with God on this book. And no matter what comes my way, I'm walking with him. That's the heart of a child of God. Not, well, we'll just see what happens. I mean, if it's like really, I mean, I'll just ask for forgiveness. You know, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission anyway. That is not how we should live the Christian life. It is a resolve. It's not accidental. When we think God's truth, we run from sin. When we lazily waltz through life, we run towards sin. And we have to hold on to that. That when I think God's truth, when I fight my sin, brothers and sisters, it's because I'm walking with God, not because I'm a great guy. When I reject God's truth, guess what? I'm pretty quick to go down the path of my sin. Because again, I forget I'm in a battle, I'm not meditating on this book, and my wisdom will go right down the path of sin every time. So, seeking God is not accidental. In verse 102, he finishes with this statement that's just beautiful, for you have taught me. Well, we already know, how does God teach the psalmist? (laughs) Right here. It's what he meditates on. It's what he loves. And he says, God, as I have dove into this book, you have taught me. And here he knows right from wrong. He knows the path. He knows the map. Why? Because God is his teacher. He's not gone to, again, self-help. He's not gone to peer relationships. He's gone to the word of God and said, God, be my teacher. Show me. Not just in the crisis of life, but in the moment by moment of life. Show me, teach me, because I long to walk with you. Do you realize that the enemy of God is called the angel of light in scripture? You know why that's significant? Because if we don't go to God and say, God, teach me, the angel of light, the enemy of God is really good at making error look like what? Truth. So there's things that come in and it's like, oh, that sounds maybe like a good idea. That's a good philosophy. That's a good ideology. And we are so susceptible to go right along with the angel of light who will destroy us if we don't know this book. But guess what? We, we're in this book and it's just a beautiful thing because the angel of light, the enemy of God can begin to speak lies from our world or our minds and we're like immediately like, nope, no, no, no. You know, your spidey sense kicks in. You're like, oh, time out. I, I, I can sniff that one. I don't know why, but something's not right. I can tell like that's not a good path to go down. But brothers and sisters, you're not, you're not in this book. You won't even know that. And so he says, God, you've taught me. And because you've taught me, I know right from wrong. And I would just add in our world, we desperately need this. We have psychologized our world to the point that we don't have any moral culpability anymore. We don't call things sin, even in the church. We talk about mistakes. We talk about the effects and consequences of something. But we don't talk about sin. We don't talk about the judgment of God. And so we have all these phrases we put on things to make it sound pretty. And man, if we don't know this book, we will be sucked into that. We'll be drawn in and we will wonder, oh, well, 
you know what, I don't think I need to believe that anymore because, you know, times have changed. And all the lies that we begin to believe because we don't know the word of God. So God is our teacher and seeking him is never by accident. Well, we're gonna finish with verse 104. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Talk about just nailing the coffin again. I mean, he's just like sledging it, right? He's just like, I'm gonna pull it out. I'm gonna crush that nail one more time to make sure we get it. I get understanding and I hate every false way. Here we see that seeking seeking truth and hating lies go hand in hand. Seeking truth and hating lies go hand in hand. So the source of truth for life is God's word. We've already covered that. Your precepts, I get understanding. Now, we may look for understanding in a lot of other areas, but that's not right. Think of Joshua 1.8. The book of the law must not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that, listen to the so that, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you, you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. The psalmist says, I get this understanding from your word. And we just go through scripture and say, it's all over the place. It's all over this book. Understanding from the word. But where he goes next is maybe a little bit harder for us today. I hate every false way. See, if we love the truth, we hate all forms of not truth. And again, we're in this culture that that we don't use hate very often. You know, you didn't tell someone, don't hate. Hate's a bad word. That's not actually good theology. There's a lot of things you should hate. You should hate, you should hate prostitution and the sex and traffic and enslavement that it produces. You should hate child trafficking. You should hate it. I mean, it should make you sick. Like, you should, it should disgust you. You should hate abortion. Like, because it's the killing of innocent life. You should hate it. You should hate forms of, all forms of racism because it's, it's putting people on pedestals based on external things, not on being made in the image of God. So we should hate it. There's a lot of things we should hate, brothers and sisters. So don't see the word hate and be like, oh, there's, there's a godly hatred. And we covered that many weeks ago in much more detail. Here the psalmist though is so clear. Because I love truth, I hate everything not true. Everything false repulses me because I love truth. Isn't our God a God of truth? Like it's one of his characteristics, which is beautiful because if God's not true, then, then our faith is absolutely worthless. So our God is true and unchanging. And so we should be of all people on the face of the planet, the chief lovers of truth. Not just truth in this book, truth in everything. We want truth. I mean, we have a society that talks about fake news. What a joke. It's just a lie. Call it a lie. We should hate lies. I don't care what branch of news you watch, hate lies. Just hate it because you love truth and know truth. Because truth cannot exist with a lie. Because they are opposed to each other. And so when we live by the word, it demands that we despise all things that are contrary to the word. The very definition of untruth. Everything contrary to the word. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. The way of self-will, self-righteousness, of worldliness, of pride, of unbelief, of hypocrisy, these are all false ways that should be abhorred. They should be hated. 
We should hate those sins in our life. We should hate them in society. We see sin and it should cause our skin to crawl. Sadly, we're often desensitized to sin, aren't we? We don't hate forms of falsehood because we're just desensitized to it all around us. But the psalmist is clear. I hate every false way. And so again, we would do well this morning to say, Lord, am I so aligned with you that I hate everything that doesn't agree with you? Now, now be clear, remember from weeks ago, hatred is not a, I'm gonna do something violent to them hatred. It's not an excuse for disrespect. It's just simply, I hate all lies because I love a God of truth. And I have these responses in me that are deep because I love truth and I will not be drawn down the way of lies. And I think here the psalmist is primarily speaking of those lies that draw him from his God because he connects it with, I hate every false way, the same thing he said earlier of, I will not turn aside from your way. He said, this is the path of God. I don't even want to entertain thoughts of going down a different path for I despise them. Do you see how he starts with delight in the word and it goes to transformation. He doesn't just say, hey, do more better. He says, no, there's delight in God and it just affects your life in radical ways. It's like the roots of a tree that just continue to go down and down and down, right? And he says, that is what God's word does in the soul when you delight in it, it transforms you. And so he calls us to delight in the word. We've covered that clearly. Then he says, by faith, believe that God is God. We do it God's way. And then we actually believe that God is good. He's God and he's good. And then we have that map for life. We actually know that what God says is best for us. And then as we've seen all over this Psalm that we choose to walk with him. Brothers and sisters, God wants you to walk in wisdom this morning. Not wisdom of some mental affirmation, but wisdom that transforms your life. Where you actually are presented with sin at any level and you go, no, no, I'm walking with God's way. I'm going his way. The way of understanding, the way of wisdom. And I would just guarantee you this morning, unequivocally, when you do it God's way, it's always better. Every time. And that's the life of faith, right? Because there are times when we do it God's way, we don't think it's better. It, we're like, oh, that can't be better. And then we, we go the way of our own wisdom. And then in God's kindness, we realize, ooh, that really was foolish. So may we be a church that, that walks in wisdom because we love God and we've been transformed by his grace. And so we're eager to say, I submit to you. I align myself with God and we'll walk with him. All right, let's pray together. Ask God to do this in our lives for his glory. Father, this morning we have labored in maybe a, a text that is hard because it's put a burden on us. And yet, God, we know that this burden is, is by your grace. You have enabled us through the power of the gospel to walk with God. And so we, we run to you this morning as a church and we say, God, help us to walk in the way of wisdom. Help us to walk in the way of understanding. Help us to be transformed by the sacred scriptures. Father God, please don't let us go our own way. Please don't let us think that we know better than God. Confront us this week with the reality that we're in a fight. And by your grace, may we keep walking down this road towards the day you call us home, living for the glory of God alone. And in Christ's name, amen.